Okay, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark and chapter 10, and, uh, or on your phone, and the version we're going to be reading from is the NIV UK version, which has the correct spellings. Because you, you know, in English, in South Africa, we use the British spellings, not the American ones. So if ever you see the word saviour misspelt up on the screen, complain. It has a U in it. The word saviour has a U in it, just like the word honour, um, thorough, rigour, favour, yeah. Colour, well done. Centre, it's the other way around. No, have I lost you already? Okay. Mark chapter 10. Uh, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 17, and I'm going to read from verse 17 to verse 45, but in three different bits. So not all in one go. So while you're getting there. And what I want to talk about this morning is leadership. Leadership. Christian leadership. Which, uh, as you probably know, is different from other types of leadership. Uh, I don't know if you've read books on leadership. I, I don't generally enjoy reading books on leadership. I've read quite a few. There are definitely some good ones, but there are definitely lots of not very good ones as well. Sometimes even the titles seem to be designed to attract egotistical types. Um, For example, here are genuine titles of leadership books. How to have confidence and power in dealing with people. That's a real title. The Emperor's Handbook. Does that not seem to be appealing to the vanity of the person who might buy that? That's Marcus Aurelius. There's a version of Marcus Aurelius's notes on how to be an emperor. Getting more. How you can negotiate to succeed in work and life. Choose yourself. That's another leadership book. Be happy. Make millions. Live the dream. I mean, it's not even trying to hide it, is it? You know. Or the 46 rules of genius. Not 47. And so uh, I've noticed with these leadership books, often they do have numbers and keys. Have you noticed that about leadership books? Numbers and keys. Not just numbers, but keys. The 21 indispensable qualities of a leader. Actually, that's a good one. The 21 indispensable qualities of a leader by uh, John Maxwell. That's actually one of the good ones. But I just want to change the titles, don't you? They irritate me. I want to I do a book called The 534 Indistinguishable Keys of Success. <laughs> because when you're looking for a key, it's never the right one, is it? It's like, is it that one? No, it's not that one. Is it that one? No, it's not that one. It's not that Where's the key? 534 Indistinguishable Keys of Success. Or the seven insufferable qualities of winners. <laughs> oh, oh. I'd like to see some leadership books on topics that you don't, aren't normally included, like this one. Again, an unwritten, an as yet unwritten book. Common Sense, What It Is and Why You Need It. I thought that'd be quite a good... Or Wisdom. That leadership quality you always forget about, you know. <laughs> so anyway, Mark chapter 10 has got important insights for us into Christian leadership, which is uh, somewhat different from the bravado that uh, is inherent in these types of books that get, get published. Um, and Mark deliberately, and, and uh, we've been studying through Mark um, at Jubilee for, well, last year and this year, and... Um, he deliberately clusters together stories. So there's a kind of joined theme. 
And so in Mark 10, we get this leadership theme in three kind of clustered stories. So we'll read those stories as we go through the message. And I've got three points. You like sequences of three. I can see that by the design that you've chosen here. The Trinity also. We, like, we, mem- we can remember sequences of three. It's true in, in, in normal speech as well. So here are my three points. The gospel we need, the gospel we want, and the gospel that we get. So the first section is the gospel that we, we need. Mark uh, chapter 10, beginning verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Hint, hint. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these have I kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the disciples were even more amazed and said to one another, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, ah, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, uh, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So the gospel we need. Most sermons about the rich young ruler tend to emphasize the fact that we can't earn salvation by our own goodness. Yes, you've heard sermons like that, and that's absolutely true. We only get into heaven on the basis of faith in Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness, not our own. We can't earn our way into heaven. But there's another reason why Mark puts this story where he does, and that's because it's also a leadership issue which becomes clear and will become clear as the rest of the chapter, when we read it, unfolds. We see here a wealthy man who approaches Jesus. Matthew tells us that he's young. Mark doesn't. Luke tells us that he's a a ruler. Mark also doesn't. These aren't contradictions. With those three Gospels, you get the full picture. People sometimes talk about, oh, the Gospels contradict each other. No, they add different pieces of information like having three cameras on a scene instead of just one camera on a scene. Like when you're watching a good football match or a rugby match, if one camera angle doesn't look like a foul, you get another camera angle. Same incident, same history, same fact of, of time and space, but 
seen from different angles. That's what we get with the Gospels. We get four different kind of camera angles on similar or the same moments. So Matthew tells us he's he's young. Luke tells us he's a ruler. All three tell us that he's rich. Verse 17, he ran up to him and asked him, what what must I do to get eternal life? How do I get eternal life? How do I get into heaven? This is like a brilliant evangelistic opportunity, isn't it? It's like, wow, this is like perfect. The man looks like the perfect candidate for leadership in this new movement. He's got everything. He's wealthy. He's young. He already has leadership experience. In fact, the Greek word that Luke uh, uses uh, for ruler, the rich young ruler, the, the Greek word that Luke uses is the word normally used for magistrate, both in the New Testament and in Greek use at the time. He was already holding public office. This guy already has. So he's, this isn't like a, oh, a, a young guy with potential in the youth group. This is a guy who's already holding public office. He is a ruler already. So he's not just a guy with potential. He actually is already in leadership in the civic space. Not only that, but he's upright. He's morally diligent. We're, we're told this already. He's kept all these, these he's, he's a decent guy. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? He's got everything. He's like the perfect candidate. It reminds me of a, uh, <coughs> a Chinese student. I was preaching in, when we, when we were working in the States, I was preaching the gospel and several people responded. One of them was a, a Chinese uh, student studying in the States. And uh, I said, as he responded to the message, and it was a, an evangelistic message, you know, uh, so what, why, why are you responding? What, what are you asking God for? And he said, I want a new life. And that sounded so good, didn't it? That's the right answer. I want a new life. So I said, that's wonderful. But something kind of stopped me. And so I asked him, so... Before we pray, what's wrong with the old life? (laughs) Which essentially, I suppose, much of the message had been about. But what's wrong with the old life? And you could see the wheels going around. Well, I'm I'm a diligent student. I've got a you know I've won a scholarship to study in the states. I'm a hard worker. You know, my parents are proud of me. He said, "There's nothing wrong with the old life." I said, "Ah." Okay, if there's nothing wrong with the old life, then maybe we need to do a study on what Christianity is before we just pray a prayer, you know? There's this kind of, and that's kind of what happens with this, this guy, this rich young ruler. Looks like, like this, it's done already, he's saying, he's on his knees, for goodness sake, saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus spots what the others miss, and sometimes we're too quick, someone, I, I want to Pray, pray, I want to respond to what we need to ask, we need to engage. Jesus spots what others miss. This rich young leader, this magistrate, is thoroughly self-righteous. When Jesus questions him about the commandments, we read it together, he eagerly replies, Teacher, all these have I kept since I was a boy. He's proud of his morality, his wealth, his leadership skills, and his standing among his contemporaries. Jesus really doesn't need any of that. He's got his morality, his wealth, his leadership skill, his reputation. Jesus doesn't need that in the movement that he's building. He doesn't need any of that. Not any of it. It sounds wrong, doesn't it? That sounds wrong. It's kind of jarring. It's awkward. There's like an awkward silence here as this 
thing is happening. That's how it was for the disciples at the time. The reality is, though, we have more problems in church life through a kind of know-it-all attitude, through an unsanctified, unteachable spirit or attitude than we do through teachable, God-dependent men and women who know that they don't have it all and are looking to God for help. There's a kingdom principle right at the core of what Christian leadership is about. Someone who presents themselves like this young man did, even inwardly to themselves, is setting themselves up for a confrontation with Jesus that will either leave them confused and grieving and on the outside of things, or broken in a, in a wonderful, redemptive way by the Savior and then ready for the Master's use. This is the beginning of Christian leadership. Sometimes that breaking and that molding continues. Well, I don't know why I say sometimes. Always that breaking and that molding continues through your life until there's genuine humility and self is properly relegated and Christ has the first place in your life. Because when Christ is genuinely first in your life, then you just watch what he could do through you. Look at the fruit that could come if you just got off the throne of your life and let God be first. I mean, the things that God could do through you. A British evangelist once said to D.L. Moody, the American preacher and evangelist, Mr. Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Moody took it on board and just saw an amazing fruit in his own life. But anyway, this entry-level interview between Jesus and this rich young ruler isn't going quite to plan. As a young man is reeling off how good he is, Jesus basically says, okay, fine, let's test that. Let's test it. You're good. You're saying you're good. Okay, let's do a good thing. <laughs> let's test the assertion. Let's do a good thing. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and I promise you, you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. <laughs> Aren't you glad you didn't get that one? It's a challenge to prove his goodness. It's trying to penetrate and break through this self thing that this guy's got going. It's a call to give up all the trappings of privilege. And it's a call to faith. He's got to believe that the promise is true. If I do this, I get treasure in heaven. Oof. Can I actually believe that? It's a rebuke to pride. It's a call to leave everything and to follow Jesus and join with this ragtaggle bunch of ex-fishermen, ex-revolutionaries, and swindlers. Ex-swindlers. You know, it's a, it's a call to identify as well. To, he's got to get down off of his high horse, and he's got to identify with the ragtaggle bunch that God loves. His church, his people. That's the beginning of Christian leadership. I mean, how can you be a leader without even doing that? the basics? Initially, it sounds hard, but of course, the others had done it. They didn't realize they'd done that. It's only later that Peter says, 
oh yeah, we gave up everything to follow you. They did. They literally left their family businesses and, and, followed, and followed him. And later in the book of Acts, we read that believers start selling property. Now, where's the stewardship there? They start selling their property and selling their land. Barnabas sells his land. He is selling his stake in the promised land. How could he do that? Because he'd seen the true promised land. He's now following Jesus Christ. He'd already given it all up at conversion. For Barnabas, all of that was already implied in conversion. Everything I've got now belongs to Jesus. It's all his. But this guy... It becomes an upfront thing because of his own pride. Zacchaeus did it. You remember Zacchaeus? He was up in the, in the tree. He encounters Christ. He promises restitution. And Jesus says salvation has come to his house. And Jesus hits this young man with the challenge up front. You want eternal life? This is what it means for you. He's going to have to truly believe in Jesus. He's going to have to truly bank on Jesus' promise of treasure in heaven alone. And he can't do it. And why can't he do it? Because he's got a lot of money. And he goes away grieving, grieving. Notice what doesn't happen next. Sometimes we just read what does happen and we think, oh yeah, that. What doesn't happen? What doesn't happen is that Jesus didn't run after him and say, oh, sorry, man, it's just a metaphor. (laughs) Of course you can come in. You went to a good school? Come on, you're in. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. And there's this awkward silence among the disciples. Maybe you hadn't noticed it before. It should be awkward. It it is awkward. Of course it's awkward. It's like, what? This young leader who's got more potential than the rest of us put together, they say, looking at one another, This guy who came actually asking how he could get to heaven has just been declined. Sure, Lord, you looked on him and you loved him, but basically you said to him, hey, Mr. Successful, you failed. Is this how we're supposed to do evangelism, Lord? You know, you can can hear it in the silence. The... um, He was German, wasn't he, Karl Marx? The the philosopher Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. I.e., the accusation is that we are just telling the poor to, you know, their responsibility is to accept the status quo in this life because they'll get treasure in the next life. That's the Marxist accusation against the Christian gospel. We're telling the poor just to put up with it just, just love God, just forgive, and leave it as it is because you get treasure in the next life. That's an obvious con. Christianity is just a means of protecting rich rulers. Now, our gospel may have been abused by deceitful rich rulers, but that is not what is happening here with Jesus because he says to this rich ruler, Give your riches to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. (laughs) That fact directly contradicts the Marxist claim against the gospel. Absolutely 
contradicts it. There should be no confusion about this. Jesus confronts a man with riches and says, give it to the poor and follow me. (laughs) And you'll have treasure in heaven. The church isn't calling people to capitalism, isn't calling people to any political, particular political party. Our role is to call people to Christ and to work on behalf of everyone in our society. So anyway, Jesus breaks this silence because they're thinking, this just doesn't sound right. This, what? Who can be saved? What is going on? He breaks the silence by saying this, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then there's a kind of an ironic illustration. It's easier to get a whole camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person into the kingdom of God. And they're like, what? He doesn't back down at all. He just pushes forward. And they are truly shocked. The standard surely is too high. How could anyone get in on that basis? And Jesus says, well, it's impossible. Again, it's like, what? With God, it's not impossible, though. With God, it's possible. And then they realize... Oh, yeah. Well, we might not have been magistrates and as wealthy as this guy, but we did surrender everything when we came to Jesus. That's normal conversion. There's nothing extraordinary about that. If you didn't surrender everything when you came to Jesus, what, what kind of Christianity are you in? You know, this is normal. That's why the whole thing of baptism, people get all kind of fussed about getting baptized by immersion publicly as a believer after you've given your life to Christ. Hold on, did you not surrender everything to him? Some of these things are just, they just follow naturally or inevitably. The gospel that we need is a gospel that goes to the heart, to the core. Do you belong to Jesus? You and all the trappings that come with you? Or are you resistant, as resistant as a camel, as it faces the prospect of, <laughs> of the impossible and yet the necessary. <laughs> You've given up everything for him. You get everything. You get everything. In this life, you get, you'll get reward. I mean, he says it clearly. And in the next life, also. So we need a gospel that truly wins our allegiance. We need a gospel that releases the hard grip on stuff in our lives so that we would follow him and give for his purpose and live for his purpose. Two gods collided in that story. The God of mammon, money, privilege, and the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. That's what just happened. That's what the disciples just saw. It's either one or the other. You can't serve God and mammon. So let's get it settled now. So that as your leadership gift develops, your Christianity develops with it. And you don't suddenly find yourself in problems. The gospel that we need is a gospel that rebukes our own moral, social, individual pride. And brings us to a place of genuine, lasting repentance. That keeps us on our knees dependent upon God. Now, I'm not sure this kind of Christianity gets preached that often, but it's compelling and it's powerful and it's challenging. 
Our appeal seems to be a call to comfort, to consolation, to the, 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 uh, the kind of washing away of, of feelings of, of guilt. But this, and, and, and the, the true gospel accomplishes comfort and consolation and the eradication of guilt. But this is a call to radical, Christ-centered living, Christ-centered followership. It's the beginning of Christian leadership, and that's why Mark puts it in there. So we've just seen, they've just seen a divinely inspired example of, of social pride, of, of this sense of self-publicly humbled, and yet, ouch, the disciples are about to make exactly the same mistake in this next little section. So let's read on in Mark chapter 10. So we looked at the gospel we need, which goes right to the core of us. Secondly, the gospel that we want is different from the gospel that we need. Verse 32, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, um, we, we want you to do for us uh, whatever we ask. <laughs> yeah? Well, those of you with young children will immediately recognize the question. Yeah. Right? <laughs> because kids are so like that, aren't they? There's a kind of innocence in their naughtiness they don't realize. I remember one of our kids... Uh, coming into the lounge once, and just, he just said, I've given it away because I've only got one son, but anyway, he just said, uh, don't look at what I'm holding behind my back. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of, you know when something's fishy. And anyway, so Jesus responds to this kind of question, committing himself to saying yes before he knows what the question, don't do that. He asked the, the right question, obviously. What do you want me to do for you? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Yes? Hmm? Well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied. I mean, it's just embarrassing. Uh, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Please. <laughs> it's just... Now, the last time Jesus said that he was about to die the disciples began to debate which of them was the greatest. It's the same dynamic. Here again, following a detailed description of his coming sufferings, two of the disciples try and get in early. Okay, he's leaving. This means he's going to die. He's leaving. Okay, what's the important thing here? Not what Jesus has just spoken about. The important thing is that we secure our positions in the new dispensation, whatever it's going to be. And it happens like, this is the second time it's happened now. It's the third time he's told them. He's going to die. The first time Jesus, uh, Peter just kind of rebuked it, remember? And he got told off. But the other two times they thought, okay, it is going to happen. So the sensible thing to do is secure our own position. I mean, it's crazy. He's describing coming suffering, and, and, they, and they're trying to secure positions of honor in, in the kingdom. He's leaving. So we need to make sure... We've got our own situation sorted out. He's describing suffering and disgrace as he looks forward. They look forward, and they're asking for prominence and honor. They still haven't yet got it. J.C. Ryle, the great commentator, says, Let us mark in this passage the ignorance of our Lord's disciples. <laughs> 
wanting to grab the best for yourself, even maneuvering others out of the way as you do so, is a depressing feature of human nature, isn't it? Of human sinfulness. And bizarrely, the world mistakes that for leadership confidence, assertiveness, and strength. Not so amongst Christian leaders. Charles Swindle uh, tells, he's a pastor in the U.S., tells this story of a, a staff, a church staff team building exercise. They went away for a day, <coughs> and they were doing various different activities, and they were going to go canoeing on this river. And before uh, they, were, uh, they could get into the canoes, uh, the instructor is giving them some basic health and safety stuff, you know. And he says, <coughs> he noticed most of these canoes were old, but there were like a few brand new ones over on this side. So he said to his son, who was 17 or so at the time, listen, son, if you go around to that side, we can get one of the new canoes, you know, when the, the thing's done. So his son, oh, great, good. And off, the, off he went. And sure enough, they then got one of the new canoes. He said when they're in the canoe, the Spirit of God just convicted him. What have you just done? Not only have you made sure, and you're leading this group, not only did you make sure you got the best for yourself, you've actually discipled your son to think in the same way. Yeah, ouch. And, and that just, he said that ruined the whole day for him. He just like was, ah, he's like, Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, value others. One of the old translations says, consider some other people better than you. It's not exactly what he's saying, because if you're really good at the piano and someone isn't as good, you can't, it's not a trick, it's not false humility, but value others above yourself. Someone once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, which is good. It wasn't C.S. Lewis, but someone said it, we don't know who. That's the beginning. Well, it's always quoted as C.S. Lewis, but it wasn't him. Anyway, James and John tried to secure top places in the kingdom for themselves, you know. So they're still, they're just making the same mistake. And there's nearly a bust up. When the other disciples hear about it, it's like, what? There's this kind of reaction. And Jesus calls them together. And he kind of brings peace even if you've got tremendous gifts that are bearing fruit for you at work or at varsity or in your family or in the church, a lack of humility, of character, will eventually bring you problems, may even undo you. We don't want that to happen. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, don't destroy with your character what you're building with your gift. That is a pearl of wisdom. I don't remember who the preacher was, actually. Um, And that's true in business, as it is in church life or any other area of leadership where you've got influence. Don't destroy with your character what you're building with your gift. Ken Sandy, who's a conflict resolution guru, guru, says, most leaders get into the position initially through hard skills training, gifting, you know, ability, and so on. And most leaders are removed for a lack of soft skills. That is, being gracious, (laughs) 
being humble, people skill, being other-centered rather than self-centered. So you get into the role through hard skills, but you get removed from the role through a lack of soft skills. So it's important if you're developing as a leader that you, you develop both sides of, both wings of that airplane. The gospel we so often want is one that focuses on what we secure for ourselves, not on what we give to others. So we've seen the gospel we need, the gospel we want, finally I need to rush. The gospel that we get, the gospel that we get. This is the third window in this three-windowed message. And then we're going to break bread, right? Verse 38, the next bit in Mark chapter 10. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can we, can I, he can sit there, I can sit there, we're right up there with you. What about it, Lord? You don't know what you're talking about says Jesus, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They're thinking, remember, thrones and glory. He's thinking a cup and a baptism. He brings them back to the suffering that he'd just been describing and which they'd overlooked. They overlooked that, that he said he would be beaten and spat on and flogged and then killed. They, they, they just skipped past that to, but what's going to happen to us? Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? So the cup is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. It's a cup of anger. It's a cup of God's fierce fury against sin. It's a cup of punishment against rebellion and sin. So Psalm 75 In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. It's supposed to be drunk by the wicked. It's punishment. In Jeremiah 49, he prophesies that the cup of punishment is a cup you must drink, he says in in judgment. But here, Jesus says, I have to drink this cup. I'm going to drink that cup. And the reference to baptism is a reference to being plunged under the waters of death and drowning there. Drowning there, dying there, and then being resurrected out of that watery grave up into new life again. That's what baptism signifies. Now, this idea of a suffering Messiah still wasn't in their minds, it wasn't in anyone's minds really, apart from the prophets who prophesied it. Maybe even they prophesied without fully knowing how it would unfold. It was still new to them. So he tries to make it clear, listen, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I have a cup to drink and a baptism to undergo. This is a, his, his leadership, what he is leading them through, he goes into first. He's not like the, uh, the general sitting in a, a barrack somewhere, 
sending the troops to their deaths. He's at the front. He's leading from the front. This image of Christ's suffering was foretold, as I hinted, in Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds... We are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. But he bore the sin of many. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says to them. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we can, they answered. Do you drink? Yeah, we can. (laughs) What? I mean, he's just described this. This is the key moment in history, the great central fact that changes everything. Yeah, sure, we can do that. I, I love the Gospels. They, you know, you'd think this is the crescendo and it would all, you know, but it's, this is true to life. they like, yeah. <laughs> Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I, I'm baptized with. And they did, in a sense, we'll read later on in Acts 12. Uh, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them, and he had James, the brother of John. So it's those two that are having this conversation with Jesus. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. You know, way before James even got to do half of what he had hoped to do and the promises and all the rest of it, what he'd been trained to do, Gone. But to sit at my right hand or left, says Jesus, is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Whoa, you thought you could get in early without telling us? You thought you could kind of sneak in and have a little kind of meeting privately, secretly, and win the favor? And you can, you know, there's going to be like a bust up now, fisticuffs, as they say in England. There's going to be some bruising. Something's going to happen here. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, this is a leadership lesson again, those who are the rulers of the Gentiles, like, and it's the same word for the rich young ruler, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This has all been about leadership. James died young. John learned the lesson. He later has to rebuke this very thing in one of the churches in 3 John. He talks about Diotrephes, who loves to be first. It's got to be first. Now, we need leadership. Leaders bring energy and strength. But are you a servant of all? What kind of leader are you? Are you a Christian leader? Or do you switch into something else? Servant of all in your workplace. In church life, we get thrown by this whole one-man ministry thing, the man of God, you know. Someone runs around carrying his Bible and wiping the chair before he sits down. And then they end up doing crazy stuff. You know, how many times do we need to read this in the newspapers or online, you know? One pastor ends up paying himself and his wife ridiculous salaries and ends up in court in the Charities Commission getting questioned. Another makes miracle claims where it's not clear that any miracle has actually happened. Another thinks, acts like he's the CEO of a company, fires those who disagree with him, leaving a trail of pastoral destruction in his wake while he declares, I am the brand. All of those three are real stories that have been in the public eye over the last few years. The self-competent rich young ruler attitude was not corrected in them or was allowed to resurface and damage was done. It's the same in business, you know it. With It can be shown in power plays, office flirtation, sexual harassment. You're not immune just because you're a Christian. The New Testament protects the church by insisting on genuine plurality of elders. It insists on a plurality of elders. It's a mo- that's a model that protects gifting of the most gifted and gifting of those who are developing their gifts. It enables multiple gifts to thrive. It enables servant leadership to flourish. Jesus says you want to be great, you need to be a servant. Not pretend to be a servant. Not, your service isn't just having ideas. Your service is serving. Serve, and you know, D.L. Moody again, he said, the, you know what the reward of service is? More service. <laughs> Serving is the beginning of your journey in Christian leadership, and servanthood is the continuing lesson of Christian leadership. Leadership is serving in whatever sphere your leadership is being expressed. And for me, this cluster of stories together that Mark joins together is telling us that. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Everybody can be great because greatness is determined by service. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Jesus said, come on, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. I mean, there it is in in a nutshell. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So check your heart. How are you doing? How are you doing? If you need to make a course correction, Maybe it's a small thing, or maybe you're just listening to this, you're thinking, oof, man, I need to get back to God, I need to pray, I need to think of how I treat others, and, you know, let the Spirit of God apply it to your situation. And then, of course, go for it. 
God wants your gift to bear much fruit. Not that you'd be glorified, because Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. When the disciples of Jesus bear much fruit, the Father is glorified. So, the gospel that we need, deny self, follow Christ. That was the lesson from the rich young ruler. The gospel that we want, but can I secure my own position in this? And the gospel that we get is he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's so powerful. The gospel we need is deny self, follow Christ. The gospel we want is what about my position? The gospel we get is he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for us. So let's pray. And we're going to break bread together. Just let it settle in your spirit. We, we are too bound up with self, aren't we? You know you are. You know you are. I know I am. We're in the same boat. We're disciples in the same boat on the same rocky seas with the same Savior. And Lord, we do want to say to you, God, we, we don't want to be rebuffed like the rich young ruler having presented all that we are, find that you say, well, thanks, but no thanks. Lord, we, we want to humble ourselves and say, you're our Savior. And even now, as we come to break bread and drink this, this juice together, we're just reminded that you gave yourself for us. You said, this is my body broken for you this blood is for you this body is for you i've done this not to serve myself but to serve you and we thank you god that you died on the cross for our sins rose again from the dead and we remember and celebrate that fact of history and ask that we would truly take it in Thank you for this, this, this image, this symbol of drinking it in, of eating it so that it comes into us. We want what you did on the cross. We want to say we fully receive it. We're actually taking it in by eating and drinking. We are allowing it to go right into us that it might transform us. Amen? Amen.